You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Jill Moore would describe herself as a bona fide play addict. Born with spina bifida, she tried a number of adaptive sports growing up, from wheelchair rugby and basketball to track and field. She received a wheelchair racing scholarship to attend the University of Illinois, where she would study industrial design. She also competed for Team USA in 2015. She continues to advance the field of play by serving as an inclusive play specialist at Landscape Structures. So we sit down with her and chat about sports, recreation, and play for all. So, Jill, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. I always love talking about play and inclusion. Happy to be here. And and I definitely want to talk about how sport and recreation was a part of your life growing up and then and then definitely spend uh, at least half the conversation on on how that uh, has materialized into what you do now. So so let's talk about um, uh, sport and recreation. Uh, you I know were born with spina bifida, and so when and how were you introduced to sport? By dumb luck. Again, I do a lot of things in my life by pure dumb luck. I believe that's a great factor. Um, but I actually, uh, it was interestingly enough, people are pretty quiet about sport and recreation. It tends to be really hard to find. Um, I saw a doctor for years and the adaptive sport and recreation program was literally one floor below his office. Uh, so it was pretty fascinating that I didn't find it until I was nine years old. And it was just, again, just purely dumb luck. But um, my parents are crazy. They are the type of people that they would always, uh, every year they would ride 150 miles from Charlotte to Myrtle beach. And we, I was crazy because when I was six years old, I asked if I could join them uh, and they said yes. And so I did nothing but sit on the back of my dad, tan the bike and tell him your mom is so fat jokes for 150 miles. That is a true story. But we did that race until I was nine and I met a gentleman who did it on a hand cycle. And that was the first time I ever really saw another person with a disability being active and playing and being a part of uh, something so big. Uh, and so that was pretty eye-opening. He invited me to my first, he thought it was a wheelchair basketball event, but he had a schedule wrong and it was actually quad rugby. Uh, and I, they told me they wanted me to play that. And I was looking at them like, what? You want me to do what? Uh, so fell into it when I was nine and just kind of became a bona fide play addict from there. I like that. It's a, it sounds like a great title on a business card too. Right? <laughs> right? Bonafide, certified play addict. And and so quad rugby was the first sport, really. First sport I ever saw. I was terrified. I, I can imagine, yes. <laughs> no one had ever explained to me what a quadriplegic was either. And so I had, here I was for the first time seeing people with limited use of all four appendages. And I'm going, do you have to do I have to break those to play? Like, is this part of the qualification? How does this go? <laughs> so I was terrified. I they had to do some serious convincing for me. And and did you did you graduate to a different sport? Because I know that, uh, or did you just take on multiple sports at once? 
Uh, they got the schedule straight and they invited me to my first wheelchair basketball competition. And so we, we went to Maryland, actually. We were with the, the Baltimore Blazers. Yep. No, yeah. Was that them? Yep, uh, that, Bennett Blazers. That, Bennett Blazers go. out of Baltimore. Yep. We were at their host tournament and we played one game. And I think after that, we got three feet of snow. I mean, so we were just, it was a great team bonding experience because we were stuck there for a while. And, um, after that, just fell in love with the culture, fell in love with the team, the people, this idea that I wasn't this small, fragile, breakable thing, but that there was more I could do. Um, and so after that, just really whatever they signed me up for, I was in water skiing, snow skiing, track field, uh, whatever they tricked me into, whatever I tricked them into, we, we tried out. So lots of experiences on the way. And, and what type, what was the environment or community like? And like, I know you were uh, living in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. So what, what, what kind of programs were there or uh, how did you, how did you find those programs? Yeah. Uh, so the program at the time was affiliated with the hospital. And um, I, I think we, we started to just grow. We started to want to pursue more things. And on the administrative side, um, we were willing to take that on. Uh, and so we formed Abilities Unlimited of the Carolinas a couple of parents of the crew did that just to make sure that we could stay competitive, really just uh, work hard on funding, make sure it was allocated to making sure we were going to competitions. And and that was the biggest thing is we were a competitive bunch. We had a lot of really cool athletes on our team and we really wanted to take it to that caliber. Uh, so the community, I mean, it was an incredible support system of parents who were advocates. It was an incredible so- system of just kids who truly appreciated what we were doing and what it took to make it happen of it wasn't just our parents were going to do all the work it was that we needed to be present as well that we were doing the education factor in our schools we were getting the community behind us and just a group that realized what we were setting up was going to last and where did you get that competitive fire from? I mean, no, obviously just playing is fun and 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 and, and, and enjoy, enjoying the recreational side of it. But where did you, uh, when and where and how did you get that competitive bug to say, I want to I want to compete at, you know, at the highest level at the Paralympic level? I think just being a really stubborn kid. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think just as I began to progress in sport, I... I realized I, I wasn't awful, that there was some potential there and that um, this is a, a tool that carries people. This is something when we get involved in adaptive recreation, it's something that truly carries us throughout our lives and presents so many opportunities, be it in sport or be it and just showing other passions. And so I, I think this competitive drive, um, I, I, I loved the competition, but I think actually what really drove me more was just to, to grow in the community of that I wanted to to go to more of the competitions, meet more people, see and experience more of these things that most people uh, with or without disability don't get to do. Uh, And so I I think, I mean, I was just an experience addict. I I wanted to be at all the games. I wanted to be uh, nervous moving the call tent. I wanted to be training. And (laughs) I I think I just wanted to be greedy and have everything I could. So I, I think the competitive spirit really came with acknowledging that to continue to do that, you had to have a drive and you had to stay in the game. And I, I really liked the way I was seeing the world. So credit is credit were due. I uh, never made a formal games. I did make the USA world team and the US Parapan American team. Gotcha. Uh, so not full Paralympics, but um, 
to Team USA athletic yeah. competitions. So I, I want to make sure that the title may, remains reserved for those athletes who do kick butt and make it all the way. But um, I actually so went to college uh, and had actually gotten really frustrated with the sport. I mean, college and being an athlete at the same time, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. challenging. And I had was an art major of all things. So I was trying really? to... to yeah, I was industrial design. So I was pulling all-nighters, doing artwork, still trying to train, travel, compete, everything like that. Uh, and I actually thought 2015 was going to be kind of my hiatus year of just, all right, let's let's take a breather. And I studied abroad or applied to study abroad in Singapore. I got it. Uh, and then the week after I signed the paper saying I was going to move to Singapore for six months, I got a call saying I had made both teams. <laughs> so... I, I remember at first I was like, oh my God, I was over the moon. And then I went, oh my God, I have to figure out how this is going to work. Uh, so chronologically speaking, I had really dedicated my path to my field for I wanted to study medical design uh, and moved to Singapore for it. And then at the same time, just said, all right, we're going to take on Team USA and got to do my first um, big games and big teams with that. That that's that's awesome. And 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 but your collegiate, did you get collegiate scholarship for a sport? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I was I there thought, for wheelchair racing. Yeah, yep, okay. I, I thought track and field, uh yeah, which at the University of uh, of Illinois, um, which has obviously a great program and has been a well recognized program for, for years. So to earn a scholarship there is definitely um shows a lot about about your talent as well. I was proud to be there. I mean I it's the coaching, it's the climate, it's you're training with some of the best. So you can't help but want to be with the best. I mean, you ask what pushes that competitive edge. And I think it's it's really the environment of you you have to do well, you want to do well. And it, it can be stressful as all get out, but it, it truly does push you and, and generate some incredible athletes. So you you said something that really struck me. So industrial design is in the art department, not like in the engineering department, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's uh, engineering for those of us who can't do math. Uh, <laughs> no, industrial design, um, it's product development. It's thinking about what's the user experience. I mean, the best, <laughs> the best thing I can think about to explain industrial design is how have you ever picked up a pen you're 99% sure works one way. And then for the life of you can't figure out how to get the pen to work. That's a bad design experience. Uh, And so industrial designers, it's thinking about what does a product look like? What does a product feel like? Uh, It's why all of us save, if we get a new iPhone and we end up saving that packaging for forever, we don't need it. It's just somebody really designed it well. Uh, And so I thought that was kind of the beauty of that field is you can truly connect with the user through how a product is designed. And and what was was the fact that you had a disability part of the reason why you thought that you'd want to go into that or study that or or what was the driving force for wanting to wanting to to kind of like spend four years of your of your college life uh, studying that particular subject matter. It actually was entirely driven from my disability. Um, I wanted to do advertising and I was not liking it. I wanted to do something creative I wanted more job security because an art degree sounds really scary. Mm-hmm. But I was taking a, a drawing class and the easel itself didn't fit my wheelchair. And the professor came up to me. Her name was Lori Hogan. I think she's the most incredible person in the world. And she said, why don't we just build a new one that fits your wheelchair? 
And I was just taken aback because that was the first time somebody had ever suggested that, that we, mm. can, we can fix it. We can design around it. Uh, and so we took measurements. We asked what worked for me. And next time I came to class, there was an easel built that was accessible. And so she said, by the way, if, if you enjoyed that experience, there is a whole field for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, I kind of came home that night just energized of that. That easel ended up being practical for other people. It ended up being something that if students came that had an ankle injury or if students that were just shorter came and wanted to be in a different seating position or uh, found themselves in a more comfortable position to draw. It was this thing that served such a multi-purpose that we had created so specifically. Uh, and that kind of lit this fire. I just, I, I loved how my experience, my my disability kind of fueled this new creation and thinking about something in a different way. And I wanted to do a lot more of that. And and that's a, a perfect segue. Uh, and I know before we uh, officially started, we were talking about how how you landed uh, at Landscape Structures. Um, talk about talk about maybe how you uh, maybe repeat that story, if you will, about how you uh, landed uh, where you currently are. Absolutely. Again, dumb luck. Um, so I actually fully left University of Illinois. I wanted to redesign the urinary catheter because uh, I did a thesis study on people and their use of the urinary catheter, and I think that's one mm-hmm. of those products that I mean, it's so. The user is so tight with, I mean, it's more used in most cases than feminine hygiene products. And yet it's a design that was created in a hospital and it never left. Mm. And so I learned that because of that design, that users end up really having very unhealthy habits with it. Uh, They would throw them away and they would keep them in their purse just because they didn't want people, they would use them and keep them in their purse because they didn't want people to see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I realized that that's where a user experience in that field would really make a difference. So I had graduated college. I was poking around the world of medical design, studied that in Singapore. Uh, And then at the time in 2016, I had come back and I had tried out for the Rio Paralympic team. I was very close. I was third most of my events. Mm. Didn't make it. Uh, But those trials were held in my hometown of Charlotte and they were the biggest ones that had been done yet. It was with swimming, cycling, track, all in one place, which had never happened. Um, It was truly put on with just such support of the city. Michael Jordan funded portions of it. So, I mean, Mm. an incredible community experience. And I was speaking with the city of Charlotte at a conference on play but just what that was like, of the magnitude of the event, what play meant for me as a person with a disability growing up and why that was so imperative. Uh, and my current boss, she happened to be sitting in on that session and me speaking and telling my story and invited me to come to a tour at the Playground Factory. Uh, and they'd invited me in July, which was very smart on their part, because if they invited me in January, that might have been a different story. Uh <laughs> So I flew to Minnesota and got to, to tour a playground factory. I got to go on my very first inclusive playground when I was 24 years old. Um, and a couple weeks later, I got a call saying, you're hired. And I said, cool, for what? <laughs> uh, and, and we really got to define what that role meant because we knew we had a voice here. We knew somebody who grew up in a world of play, but not playgrounds, uh, who could speak to what that specific exclusion felt like and how we could make that design environment so much better. Long-winded answer, but yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> and so based on obviously what you know and your own lived experience and what you do now, what, what does inclusive play look like uh, to you? 
Oh, that is a hard question. Um, Again, I grew up, I I think it's important to say that the playground was the very first place in my little world that told me no. Uh, A playground growing up with a disability, with a wheelchair, mobility aid, autism, what have you, um, whatever these diagnoses so many people had, it was a place that didn't support that. It was Mm -hmm. somewhere that was going to show everything that made us different, but in a bad light. It was going to show that, okay, if you're moving too slow, you're an obstacle to play or your mobility device is causing you not to be free and to thrive in this environment, but slowing you down. Uh, So I remember sitting with a stigma on myself that my wheelchair was bad. Or I remember looking at other people thinking because she's crawling, she's slowing me down. Uh, So I I realized it was this place that I, I didn't want to be because I wasn't going to showcase that I was competitive, that I loved to play tag, that I had a crazy imagination. And it wasn't that I was lacking. It was that my designed environment was. It it didn't suit me. Uh, So I think to truly create an inclusive place is, to me, it means that we're creating a designed environment that does invite. That it says, yes, you're meant to be here. There's going to be so many different ways for you to show off what you're good at, how you thrive, how you play. Um, And I I, I think that's what makes for a success is, is... invitation, invitation of all these groups who hadn't necessarily been there before. And do you have any insights as to why, you know, your, your, your current boss, for example, or even the, the company in general, even decided that that was a value important to them? Because obviously there are a lot of companies that maybe are behind the eight ball. I'll be, I'll be gentle and nice when I say that, uh, when it comes to realizing uh, the fact that uh, there's a lack of inclusion. I think the thing I'm most proud of working with my company and truly, I don't even know (laughs) the right words to use because they believe in it. I mean, they believe that just people with disabilities need to be in the conversation. Otherwise we're not going to further the conversation because Mm -hmm. how are we going to create something for persons with disabilities if we don't know what makes a successful experience? Uh, and so I think when they they heard that talk, it wasn't necessarily that they looked at me and said, oh, she's a playground expert. I think they just saw that I'm a user with a disability who's very passionate about play and what it does for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we could coach the rest. We could figure out playgrounds. We could figure out what that means, how to support different ability levels. But um, I, I think the value they truly place in everything we do inclusive is user voice. It's not assuming what a user needs. It's making sure that we're inviting people to the table. Uh, we work with a kid. His name is Dash. And uh, he's got the best jokes. Like this kid has just, he, the first thing he ever said to me was, hello, my name is Dash. And I'm faster than the kid from The Incredibles. And I said, yep, got it. Noted. Uh, but <laughs> well, I, love, I in, love the name Dash. Right? He just, yeah. He's so cool. But he would come in and he would test our products. and. I mean, there's no better way to know how to know what we're doing than bring the parent and the kid in. Is they're saying uh, Dash like snapped his fingers once, like actually called someone over and said, this needs more swishy swashies. Uh, and a grown man had to write that down. But I mean, that that user input is is mm-hmm. what makes success. And so I think that's what I'm most proud of, of landscape structures and working with them is that they truly believe that the end user needs to be a part of the front conversation. And my first question would be, uh, what is swishy swashy? 
You know, uh, the best part about it is we all knew. We were like, ah, yes, Swishy Swashies. We've got uh, it. You're like, of course. It does need more Swishy Swashies. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> and, and so uh, using your own lived experience, you know, uh, with a disability, you've been able to work with a design with with the design team to to make the playground and even some of the products that are, that are on the playground more more meaningful and, and engaging. What what has that meant for you? And and uh, in terms of you know just your own the own your own impact that you've been able to make in this space. It was an emotional ride. Um, I mean, when I, I started my job, I, I clearly knew nothing about playgrounds. There was something that was so out of my wheelhouse, and so. Uh, I, I think, honestly, one of the things that made me as attached to my job as I am was that emotional ride, is I had to spend a good year and a half, good two years of learning exactly what I missed. Of if Because I was never discontent with not going on the playground. I never felt slighted by it. I thought, well, people gave me other things to do. I still had friends, so I didn't realize that it was something that I truly missed out on. But uh, I think those first two years were almost, it was education and grief. Uh, that every kid deserves this. This is where kids are, are forming these social bonds, these lifelong friendships. They're building cognitive skills. They're building emotional skills. They're taking uh, risks, challenging themselves, discovering mastery. And that I, I didn't have my chance for that just because somebody didn't design the environment, right? And so I think a lot of that, in, that, that propelled my why of, of why I'm so passionate about what I do and why we do it. And I think it, propels and it shows itself into when we're creating new products. Um, the, the big one right now that we've just released that I think is just such a cool testimony to problem solving is the, the WeGo swing. And that is the, I hate the term wheelchair swing. I feel like that should not be a thing because that implies it's only meant for one kind of user mm-hmm. when it should just be a swing. Uh, right. And so they sound so great in theory and we see so many communities that want them, but in reality, uh, a wheelchair swing, uh, which typically they are, they do only fit one type of user is very, very unsafe because it ends up being very, very heavy. And so if another child's to walk in front of it, it's going to act as a steel battering ram. And mm. obviously someone can get very, very hurt. Uh, so more often than not, these swings have to be fenced off. They have to be put in a different spot. You have to call your park and recreation department to get the key that might open the lock. Uh, that's probably been vandalized uh, to the point where I've only been on one once in my entire life. It didn't work. And this little kid pressed his head through the bars and said, ma'am, I don't think you're supposed to be on that. Um, so it was kind of this grand challenge that we we faced of, okay, uh, this is a sensation that we're lacking and how do we, we fix this? And so, I mean, I, I got to use this user voice of understanding some of those parts in the playground that I had missed, like independence. Um, when we created the swing, it was very, very critical that kids with disabilities, anybody who's using it is able to help propel the motion. Um, not being done to them, not waiting for their caretaker or a friend, but to actually be able to participate. That was a really big thing. Uh, and being able to move around freely, being able to sit where you want to, being able to have that choice, that autonomy. Um, how do you want to use this thing? Do you want to be the one pushing it? Do you want to be in the middle, just getting the swishy swashies? Um, where's the best fit? And so I, I think that's one of the, the parts of my job that I love the most is being able to advocate for what matters the most for people with disabilities, of, of what sensations have we missed? 
Um, and so we, we've created a swing that can be fully integrated, not fenced off. It can actually be in the playground area. Uh, it can fit kids of other abilities so they can get that face-to-face -face interaction. It's not a wheelchair swing. It's just an inclusive swing. Yeah, I was going to definitely ask you about that because I, I I know that it's a, a, one of the new products. It's definitely an inclusive swing. It's a no transfer swing, which is really really cool. And, and um, so if if communities are just new and you know, like cities, I, I know there are tons of city parks and recs in and cities and communities across the across the the country, if not the world, that still you know maybe lack in these types of inclusive play environments what do you recommend for a uh, uh, as a first step do they do they reach out to to you know you or the team there and and have a dialogue about what they're what they're wanting and and how to be more inclusive it's reaching out i mean it's starting with us it's starting to get your education or it's starting to put some pressure if you've got a group of people with disabilities and then you know you something you need uh, it's putting pressure on the people who make those decisions. It's calling out to your park and rec department and saying, um, and, and not demanding. I think that's the biggest thing. It's not demanding its conclusion. It's saying we want to work together with you to make this community more inclusive. Because when we demand, that's when the park and rec department can come back and say, oh, okay. It's the lack of education. Of, I, I believe to truly get anywhere, we, we don't need to start with yelling, but start with educating. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's coming into our park and rec departments, coming into the, the stakeholders that make it happen and saying, this is how prolific it is. One in four Americans has a disability. This is for our multi-generational aspect, parents with disabilities. This is something so widely used. Uh, so coming in with that artillery of education and, and being ready to work alongside them and working alongside them at a pace that, that they can handle. Because a lot of the times... These are expensive playgrounds. Uh, they're a little more expensive with the rubberized surfacing. And so it's mm -hmm. maybe taking a look at, okay, is there a park where we could fit the, the Wego round or the Wego swing uh, and add that retroactively just so that it has a little bit more inclusion for people. It's a busy park. Uh, is there a way that we can still make sure there's something for people to do here? Um, so sometimes it's moving slow. Sometimes it's, it's putting pressure in the right places and educating and getting people really, really excited. Um, but I, I think it starts with just an initial reach out to either playground people, park and rec people uh, who, who know where to get the ball rolling. And, and besides, you know, playing on playgrounds for a living, what what else? How else are you still engaged in sport and recreation on a on a daily or, or regular basis for you? Uh, that, that took a while. Um, when I, I left sport, I, I was pretty tired. Um, mm -hmm. I had been racing since I was nine years old and I'd been racing at an elite level for a pretty significant amount of time. And so six days a week, twice a day. And I, I was tired. Uh, and then I also found out when you get a big girl job, you lose a lot of time. Uh, so my, my even personal relationship with recreation, I mean, through play, it, it kind of got mended that it's it's okay to do this at a leisurely pace. It's okay to mm -hmm. to take a hand cycle out and go down the road. And I don't have to spread. I don't have to race my husband, even though I'm very inclined to, uh, to tell him to keep up, but that we can <laughs> do this, just enjoy it. And so, I mean, uh, I'm finding my, my peace with recreation at a, a leisurely lifestyle and just enjoying being able to do so. I'm about to go camping in a week. I've never camped before. 
I don't know if that counts and I'm terrified. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, now, now you can you take a break and, and it's not always about a race, right? You can just uh, have fun and, and we, we promote both. We promote competition, but we also promote just recreation and being active and, and enjoying, you know, nature and all the things that the recreation can provide uh, in addition to the, the competitive uh, components and elements. So, so, Jill, if people want to just learn more about uh, you or or even your company's work, what where would you where would you recommend uh, they go look? Um, great resource of just what we do and where to find a playground that we've we've created is uh, playlsi.com. P l a y l s i dot com. Um, that it's a it's got a tool that shows playgrounds near you, uh, but it also shows just our general approach. Because I mean, I think. Uh, what I am very proud of what we do is we work with autism. We work with sensory processing disorders, visual impairments, deaf, um, deaf, blind hearing, what have you. Uh, and we look at these different diagnoses and we have resources for that. And so I, I think something pretty impactful for the, for the everyday user who's thinking about it is to be able to see that and to connect with those resources and say, okay, this, this is being thought about. Um, but to learn more, I'm also, I'm a big fan of people just emailing me of just saying, hey, I have a ridiculous question. I mean, that's how we have made some of our most meaningful contacts. Uh, mm-hmm. Even just reaching out to us on Facebook, it, it does go. We had a woman who reached out the other day. Her daughter has a visual impairment. And she said, I, I think I've got some good information on how she uses the playground. Take that for what you will. Uh, and we did. I mean, I ended up having a two-hour conversation with her about just how uh, an ability different than my own navigates this space. Um, so really just any of our channels, they are open and they do go to the right people. That's fantastic. And, and that's so important because we can all learn from other people's experiences. And um, so, Jill, thank you so much for being my guest. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Mm-hmm.